In the depression caused by the sagging of the floor, pieces of animals manifested themselves. The head of a crow, mummified hands which might have once been parts of monkeys. A donkey stood a little way off, not stirring and yet apparently alive. At least it had not begun to deteriorate. He started toward it, feeling stick-like bones, dry as weeds, splinter under his shoes. But before he could reach the donkey, one of the creatures which he loved the most, a shiny blue crow fell from above to perch on the donkey's unprotesting muzzle. Don't, he said aloud, but the crow rapidly picked out the donkey's eyes. Francisco for the Labor um, Day weekend show. Is this the Finding Favorites I've got Jimmy my Buffett episode? Off. Is that <laughs> what's happening? For greater rock and roll. <laughs> I can keep going if you want. Ah, uh, wait, wait, wait. How does it go? Uh, honey, I didn't know that I'd be missing you so come Monday. It'll be all right. all right. Come Monday, Come Monday I'll, be I'll be holding you tight. <laughs> I spent four lonely days in a brown LA haze, LA haze. and I just and want I you back by back my by side. side. <laughs> I could keep going if you want, but I feel like, I feel like I've made my point. <laughs> That's pretty good. My favorite part of this is the, like, the wildly ersatz background. Um, <laughs> Good like, Philip K. Dick word right there. Yeah, like, this would only work if the shot were, like, incredibly tight. It's a very long <laughs> lens. Like, it would, it yeah, yeah exactly. Too, but, uh, That's a pretty good... Um, it's a pretty good backdrop you it's got a great, there. Like, I, I like the curtain. print. It came from my local thrift store. That uh, the uh, well, probably the smart thing to have done would have been to take a photo of the curtain and then set that uh, as the zoom background. But I'm not smart, uh, so um, yes, that would. I think I think it's actually getting a better effect at the moment. I think I think there, this there is, is much... a kind of DIY sort of <laughs> yearning, uh, kind of try-hard quality to it right now. This that is great, that is, yeah. And uh, then like 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 a few slices of wood to hold it down, because like I imagine you were like. Yeah, I'll just grab some clothespins. And then, like, five minutes later, you're like, I don't own clothespins. <laughs> what do I have that's nearby? Um, Chris Bag, why uh, did I open our show uh, hmm. performing a Jimmy Buffett tune today? Uh, I believe, well, um, I mean, the I mean, real there's never a bad cause. reason for you to do that. <laughs> well, okay. Be- because True. of okay. awesomeness. Right, okay, yes. The, the real proximal cause is that Jimmy Buffett is awesome. Right. Um, and uh, I, there was a lot of really good agiography um, for him recently uh, and all sorts of like wonderful stuff about like Jimmy Buffett's background, like running grass in the Florida. Oh, Gulf, yeah. You know, in the 60s and 70s. And then um, a lot of stories that I, I had sort of heard about but didn't know about. Great. Fascinating and life. Totally fascinating. The, life. the next less good proximal cause is because spoilers uh jimmy buffett is dead 
Okay, True. good. You knew that. True. I, I did know that. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. What? <laughs> that, that's the joke. And then the third and perhaps most pertinent proximal cause is the uh, uh, proximate cause? Proximate cause. I think that is the term. I'm using proximate. proximal incorrectly. Proximate yeah. cause. Proximate cause. Um, sorry, everybody. Yeah, and I would say the underlying cause is that Jimmy Buffett is awesome. That and the proximate cause. You're you're now into proximate cause territory. Yes, exactly. Um, is that you were on Finding Favorites with Leah Jones recently, uh, doing another episode about why Jimmy Buffett is so awesome. Um, we don't want to spoil it or like keep people from going over to Leah's fantastic show, but what would you say is the top one reason that Jimmy Buffett is awesome? I think that the way, what I told Leah, it, Jimmy Buffett, uh, in throughout his career, the adverb, is it an adverb? Yes. The adverb that comes up quite a bit is deceptively mm, interesting he is for example a deceptively good songwriter and a deceptively good musician and a deceptively oh. hard worker and a deceptively profound and melancholic uh songwriter um mm. and yeah i think that's enough i will the other thing i will say too is that i i am a fan of jimmy buffett's music that i came to that late in life um so mm -hmm. so i do tell the story of how that came about and then i also talk about what i don't like about jimmy buffett particularly his branding um mm. i wish that he was more thoughtful about who he allows to kind of use his name and associated brand and the kind of things that those companies get up to um so there's a little bit of criticism uh, in the sandwich of uh, hagiography. Well, that is a great teaser for uh, what I'm sure is a great show. But everybody, uh, go listen to hear about what uh, Jesse loves and also um, has some critiques about Jimmy Buffett over on Finding Favorites. I think that is an excellent start. Thanks for allowing me to hijack the opening bit in service of self-promotion. I love it. Um, I, I have I don't have an opening bit. I perhaps have a bit when we get to the climax of the novel. Oh, okay. Which I'm hoping will turn. Uh, sorry, into... there was a climax to this novel. Right. Sorry. Um, <laughs> not the climax of the novel. The no, I, um, there there is the... a climax. It's just you know arguably not necessarily a good climax. But right. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was gonna say the the summary wrapping up of plot elements should we get right into the recap for the sake let's of... get into the recap if uh you remember we left our hero uh in the company of for sure protagonist um in the company of another bounty hunter named phil resh Phil Resch? Phil, Phil Lesh? <laughs> Phil Resch, the bounty hunter, not Phil Lesh, the bass player for the Great Pyramid. I know, I was like, wait yeah. a second, why is that? Phil Resch, why can neither of us remember that character's name? It's very bland name. Um, we left uh, Rick Deckard um, in the company of Phil Resch, uh, a bounty hunter whom Deckard is having doubts as to that bounty hunters actual humanity um but he's not sure and, yet. and not and, whether he's a good guy or not not that version of humanity 
right whether like, he is, is he a, a homo human? sapiens yeah <laughs> yeah or an android um and phil resch seems to be worried about it too right uh to the point that he even says all right let's let's go get lubeluft and you know afterwards you can test me and hey, you can you know, kill me an, later if i'm an android you can kill me later heck you know what i'll do it myself yeah <laughs> and um and then they just kind of wander off to go take care of uh lubeluft and um she uh, once again proves to be kind of the most like clever android that we encounter in the book. Uh, she asks Deckard to buy her a book of uh, Edval Munch uh, paintings. Um, there is a Munch show going on. Um, Deckard is pretty, very well versed in Munch. Um, he knows some of Monk's earlier uh, representational work before Monk got into Expressionism, um, which feels a little too easy, but whatevs. Um, and uh, yeah, Luba taunts uh, Resh, and uh, he gets angry and kills her. Then Deckard and uh, Deckard tests Resh. There's a chapter cliffhanger, and we open the next section with uh, discovering that Resh is in fact human. Um, and Deckard asks Resh to monitor his equipment while Deckard asks himself some questions. Um, the end of this is that Deckard has discovered that he is developing some empathy for, in particular, female androids. Um, yeah, and, and also and he... as manifest by buying the book for uh, Lubaluft. And, you know, throughout this chapter, there's this sense that he's not savoring this task. Yeah, he's he's liking his job kind of less and less as we go. Um, yeah, you want to you wanna take it over? Yeah, but, you know, real sheep don't buy themselves. Um, so he continues on. Um, there's this kind of like, I just wrote more stuff with Isidore and Pris. Uh, I don't quite remember the details. He's kind of got the hots for her. She's sort of stringing him along a little bit. And she's like, I'd really like you to meet my friends. And he slowly figures out that they're all androids. Roy, who I, I, maybe I'm just remembering this from the movie, but I think in the book too, is thought of as the most dangerous of all of them. Mm -hmm. He's thought to be the most intelligent and he is a mystical personality he's kind of like an android who's been programmed to be a cult leader um shows up and he doesn't actually seem that smart and they kind of befriend isidore although roy sort of actively voices his thought that they should kill isidore um but he gets outvoted uh deckard flush with his bounty money buys a goat uh he doesn't have money for a sheep but he does have money for a goat it's a nubian goat um, and he takes it home to his wife. She's really happy about it at first until she figures out that he just bought it to cheer himself up because he's feeling depressed about killing androids. Um, he kind of, you know, struggles with those feelings. They sort of revel in their goat for a little bit. Um, and then he's like, yeah, I got to kill the rest of them because the goat's going to need some maintenance money. You know, and we're in a lot of debt, so I better kill these other three androids. But he, because of the empathy, he realizes he wants to take Rachel Rosen up on her offer of killing the last few androids or maybe just sleep with her instead. He's kind of it seems 
I don't know what his intentions are, but he definitely seems when he calls her, he's like, yeah, I could use your help killing androids. Or if you'd rather just like meet at a hotel and have a tryst, we could do that. And she's like, yeah, I'm into the ladder. Um, and so she flies down from Seattle in about an hour and she shows up wearing a coat uh, that is fish scales in matching bra and shorts, which is just a wonderful outfit. Again, sort of Philip K. Dick at his best. And she is not excited about helping kill the androids. She is she, so she in, tries to and succeeds at seducing Deckard. Um, they make kind of an agreement that she's going to kill Pris, who is an exact identical copy of her, and she has some kind of like an existential frustration around that. Um, but then she says, "Aha! I slept with you so that I would make it so that you're. It's impossible for you to kill androids now. In fact, that's why the Rachel model was built." Um, and Deckard's like, "God damn it! I'm really angry about that, and I'm gonna kill you." And then it's revealed that she's done that with nine bounty hunters before, so she's sort of like an android slut. And I you yeah. can't tell, including if- Resh. Including Resh, and you can't tell if Deckard is angry because he she tricked him, or angry because he's sexually jealous. Probably a little bit of A, a little bit of B. He doesn't actually kill her. And in in the midst of all this, uh, the androids and Isidore watch a broadcast from Buster Friendly, who is like a popular news anchor, and it's a sixty minutes type investigation to that reveals that Mercer is a fraud and that the Mercer hallucinations were created in a studio and I'll kick it back over to you. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's like, uh, I don't know. It imagine that all of the people who were playing world of Warcraft for years, like really thought that it was real. Yeah. Like this kind of shared experience was like a real thing. Um, and, uh, that it was suddenly revealed that all of that was in fact just a, uh, a sham video game is kind of the, the way that I was thinking about it. Yeah. Um, or if it, if it shows re- re- revealed that like Jesus was actually like created in a video game. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, yeah. Or like, you know, that like the dude named Joseph Smith who was yeah. in upstate New York, <laughs> like they found um, his journal know. and he's like, I'm just going to make some stuff up and see if I can make <laughs> some money with some religion, which uh, yeah. Mormons out there. I'm not saying that that's what happened at all. I'm just, we're just coming up with a hypothetical situation. Totally. Yeah. So Deckard uh, shows up at the building with Isidore and the androids. He's kind of there because his boss just like press gangs him into it. <laughs> I, like, yeah. He's nope. like, I want to go to bed. Yeah, I'm really tired. I've killed three androids today. (laughs) And his boss is like, well, the record's seven. You could get close. And, uh, you know, he sort of like schlubs off to the the apartment building. He talks with Isidore, and he just kind of impersonates Isidore badly. The androids kind of know that it's him, but they let him in anyway. Oh, he kills Pris in a hallway on the way up to the apartment after um, mercer appears and tells him that it's okay to do that right yes yeah, exactly. he has a mercer hallucination and mercer's like yeah that you do need to kill these androids there was some business earlier with isidore and the androids uh pris kind of mutilates a spider in a really frustrating section that upsets isidore um there's a really confusing action sequence where deckard just kind of kills the two androids and it really makes us wonder why this is such a 
difficult seemed but pretty easy (laughs) yep and i will give it to you to uh take us home yeah and actually i think the hardest moment is when pris is in the hallway and he has this brief confusion where she really looks like rachel and even though he's completely prepared for that he's still thrown off for a second and she almost gets the drop on him but then he's like no wait it's not Rachel. The eyes are crazy and, and you know, lasers her in half. Um, so uh, Rick is feeling crappy about having killed uh, three beings who are certainly, in his view, alive, whether they have empathy or not, whether they deserve to be killed um, because they're dangerous is, is an ongoing question. But he has developed empathy for them. And so killing them makes him feel kind of bad talks with his boss and some of the people at work they're all happy for him he talks to his wife on the phone and learns that the goat that he had purchased earlier that day had been murdered by rachel rosen we learn earlier that rachel rosen was fond of luba luft um in an interesting moment because rick's like yeah i liked her too that luba luft good dame you know too bad she was an android and we had to killer with a laser beam um so he kind of goes on a bender he takes his hover car up to oregon you know at the wasteland kind of gets out and then he has another hallucination where he feels as though he is mercer um and then he kind of comes out of that and he's feeling really at, at odds and by god he finds a toad and he's like this is really exciting because uh, toads are mercer's favorite animal And he takes it home to his wife and shows her the toad. And she immediately realizes that it's a fake toad. Um, But um, she seems to feel sorry for him. And there's kind of a tender reconciliation. And so she sets the mood organ to long-deserved peace so that Deckard can feel a long-deserved peace. And sort of the last image of the book, as I recall, is she sets about sort of ordering supplies, even though it's a fake toad. It seems like her intention is they're going to take a good care of this fake toad, of this robotic toad. And that's all I remember. Um, that is the uh, the book. So um, last time you were a little bit more in the... Uh, this is a series of, you know, good ideas strung together with clunky action. Mm. I was a little more taken with the ingenuity of the world. Where are you kind of ending with this book so last time i think i said something like this book was slow to me to reveal its virtues Mm -hmm. and but by the middle of it i was really enjoying it and i think it pretty much peaked at chapter 11 (laughs) um (laughs) and i thought it went downhill pretty quickly in the second half there were some nice moments um but i think the ideas became increasingly incoherent I think the plot made less and less sense. Uh, I didn't really find myself invested in what happened to Deckard. Um, I found, you know, you one point you referred to the writing as being not overwritten and maybe slightly underwritten. I felt like it alternated between those two, like a kind of uh, oscillation uh, sort of waveform and very rarely found the sort of right balance. Um I did kind of like the ending, though, um, and and I still, but I don't feel like any of the ideas were resolved in a particularly satisfying way. Um, I don't think that there was a satisfying plot. Um, I don't think that I ever was particularly invested in Deckard as a character. 
nor do I really feel like whatever journey of growth or discovery he, he went through seemed particularly earned or sort of influenced the outcome of the story in any particularly interesting way. Um, so, yeah, I found the second half to be a letdown, um, even though there are still moments in it. And I do feel on the whole enriched from having read this book. Um, and I, I, I was let down. I thought there were a number of ways that that the ideas in the first half of the book could have been resolved in fascinating and thoughtful ways. And none of those things, in my view, happened. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I found myself in continuing to enjoy the world, sort of. It got, somehow it got sketchier as the book went on. This, was, this is one of those odd books where more description led to greater vagueness. Yeah. And I think that the thing that I found most intriguing in the first half, which is the Mercerism shared hallucination, um, kind of the way that you talked about Case and that, like, it really would be great if Case just thought about Molly rather than Case being like, I thought about Molly but I also really need to get rid of these poison sacks. Right. And it would be such a more interesting character if he just thought about a, a human that he cared about rather than, you know, this thing yeah. that he has to fix for himself. I thought that, I mean, pretty quickly, you know, this book begins to reveal itself as a... I don't think it's one of those books where the weight of the... I do think it's one of those books where the weight of the allegory begins to crush the book. Yeah. There's just so much allegory that he's trying to cram in here. Um, this, book's come, this book comes out in the late 60s. There is a very palpable like fear of annihilation hovering mm -hmm. over it, mm -hmm. which makes perfect sense sure. given the particular time. Yep. Um, and... and you, you can really hear a lot of the existential dread of Philip K. Dick's influences, hugely influenced by um, European uh, philosophers. And so pretty quickly, you begin to tick all of these things off like, oh, like capitalism is bad. Um, religion is the opiate of the masses. And it begins to fall into not trite, but almost trite. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's it's unfair for us. It's We're, we're almost 60 years after yeah. the publication of this novel. All of these ideas have been thoroughly worked over before you and I were born. Um, but I was very, I was disappointed by the fact that mercerism is kind of revealed to just be kind of a sham. And we get maybe there is some re reality to mercerism because of Deckard's final vision up on the the you know the um, border of Oregon and and Isidore's vision that he has after it's revealed to be a sham. Which and was, I've got that, that reading that, keyed up. Yeah, that one was maybe the most interesting iteration I thought of the mercerism. And yeah, I I don't think the ideas 
in Philip K. Dick's head were at all trite. Um, I, but, and I do think it is easy for us to be unfair because of the time lapse. And I do think that with Mercerism and with really all the sort of subplots and themes, he's basically saying that the idea of real and fake, I think the main idea of this book is that the idea of real and fake is not a very useful distinction to make. Right. Correct. And that Mercerism is both a sham, but there is also something palpably real about it and beneficial mm-hmm. and androids are fake people but there is also something real about them and mm-hmm. empathy might be a sham in the in the you know the toad is the expression of this and i i think i think if anything this is the deckard's journey as a protagonist that we're meant to understand and it is sort of coherent i don't think that's necessarily a trite idea i just think he could maybe hang it on a more interesting story and and yeah. plot with better characters and that's and I, I wish I there's there's like all of these ideas are somewhat realized. Yeah. And that's the it's the same place that I was kind of in. They're realized with in kind of like a mathematical way that, you know, you can mm-hmm. be like, OK, uh, where does Decker end up? Well, Deckard now has retired from killing androids. And he is taking care of this toad. So he has reached a point where he has developed more empathy and he has decided to, that the, the distinction between real and fake is no longer as important as his society <laughs> is motivated. So mathematically, that is the outcome for him. But it, yeah. I don't feel it, you know? I know. I, I, know. I don't care. Yeah, exactly. And in the same way that I don't, when, uh, yeah, this is this is my uh, my prepped bit. Uh, when uh, when Rachel Rosen Martin Sheen's a goat, um, then uh, it just doesn't hit me the way that it does when Martin Sheen gets thrown off a building in The Departed. When I'm like, oh God, <laughs> like I really like that's so unfair, that's so not right, and it's I would want to believe that this is a better work of art than The Departed, which I'm a movie that I'm not crazy about because I think that it I think it plays fast and loose with your the way that you trust a narrator, a narrator mm. and a creator. Yeah, um, it's more of a gotcha movie than a actual developed I, uh, like piece of emotional. Yeah, realism. it's like an assemblage of brilliant performances signifying nothing uh do you know what i mean it's like everybody's performance in departed is great the shots are great the set pieces are great and yet it's kind of a clunker of a story in my opinion right this is a tale told by an idiot full of boston accents being said badly a tale told by a brilliant director Except for uh, Mark Wahlberg nails it, right? He, he better get he does, it. Uh, there's actually a, a very funny article that ranks the Boston accents in The Departed it's, it's alone. It's really Leo who really just wrecks it, right? Like Leo's Boston <laughs> accent is the... Although I, I do feel like that was one of Leo's greatest like wild-eyed paranoia performances yeah. that I can remember seeing. That was yeah. a moment where I'm like, oh, he's still got it. Like I, I believe this guy is paranoia for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, it's a very funny article. Um, they, they sort of, uh, Matt Damon only ends up in the middle and right. the, the note about him is like, you're from Boston. We get it. Get over it. <laughs> I've read this article. 
it's very funny. <laughs> I've read this story. Yeah, well, him doing him doing that Southie accent would be sort of like I don't. know, It would be like me doing a West Virginia accent. Like it's one yeah. that I grew up adjacent to, but not necessarily with. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, kind of getting. I mean, I just. <sighs> I don't know. I wanted to really enjoy this more than I did. And by the time, and it, and it read fine, you know, pages turned. Um, but similar to my experience with Neuromancer, I felt like I was seeing it through a fog. And I think that's because of the, the ideas overwhelm the writing. I agree. I the visual image I had a lot of the time. Have you ever seen that Lars von Trier film Dogville? I have not. It is. I believe it has Nicole Kidman. And it is a movie. But the, it is a movie that is almost entirely shot in something that looks like a black box theater. And so the characters are like having a scene at a kitchen. And there's like black background. Maybe you can even see the lighting rigs. There's like on the ground is taped the frame of the house and there's like a table and like one prop and then they're playing a scene and then like a limo drives onto the stage and James Kahn gets out. And and I often felt like that was that was my visual of this book. a lot. Like I didn't I couldn't really imagine the city, couldn't really yeah. imagine. I could see the characters and it was as though everything it was almost like your zoom background. Everything around them was blurry. Um, and that's actually one thing I did not feel about Neuromancer, where where I actually got a lot of wonderful visuals around. I, yeah. I found the character's motivation to be more sort of obscured. Um, but um, but I don't know. Maybe we should maybe we should dig into some of the specifics, right? Like yeah. I mean, I think yeah, yeah, we've yeah. both given our. Yeah. You've I mean, got you got a want... great question here about um, Deckard retiring the androids that I'm <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing. Do you think that there is so any normally? I mean. A book doesn't have to be a good story to be a good book. Um, an idea book could have could be an interesting character study, perhaps, mm -hmm. or could have interesting ideas. But in a good story, usually, um, a protagonist encounters personal growth throughout the course of the story, and that personal growth allows them to achieve the final task, the climactic task. The yep. climactic task in this book, uh, as a kind of police noir is retiring the androids do you think that deckard gains any capacity in the course of this novel that allows him to succeed in that final moment in that climactic moment no i don't the only thing that changes for him is he overcomes the empathy that he feels for rachel when he kills pris right and that is appears to be a pretty easy thing for him to overcome. And and it's almost sort of like if it were Rachel, he wouldn't be able to do it, but he but it's like at the last minute he's like, "Oh, it's not Rachel. I can easily kill her." And yeah, it does not seem particularly hard and even and it doesn't seem like it has emerged from any particular personal growth, which, mm -hmm. you know, I don't not all stories have to follow classic story structure in this case, but I just I was just curious about that, like mm -hmm. whether I, there was something I was missing in that sense. No. And also, like, the thing is, is what you just described is not empathy. Right. It's affinity. Right. Affinity for one specific other person, in this case, Rachel Rosen. Right. And so it, it it's a little self-defeating of 
dick to put this in there because it's a moment when actually Deckard doesn't have any empathy. Maybe that's the point. Maybe this is an ironic book and the entire time I know it's a hard that's a hard pill to swallow for yeah. me too. <laughs> it's a I'm I'm hoisting a straw man. Yeah. <laughs> but um I mean you might be right. It's certainly a surrealist book, right? Like the laws of reality are not quite at work in this book. Yeah. Um, and those are my favorite moments, actually. When when reality slides away and we end up in the Mercer hallucinations, I really love the way that he dispenses with the need to do stage blocking at that moment. Yeah. There's, there's very rarely a like, you know, Isidore walked over and clutched the handles of the empathy box. I think it happens once, which first is like time, right? Right. Yeah. Good. Good job. Yeah. Good. Good work, Mister Dick. Like you gotta set up your details ahead of time so that then your audience can understand what's happening. Um, and I like that. That's the thing I really like. Is I was like, the, I, I experienced that pleasurable experience of metaphor yeah. when the first thing your brain does is reject the connection. And then your brain sort of doubles back and is like, well, wait, maybe. And it and that's a fun experience of as you're sort of trying to layer over this this vision onto what might actually be happening. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It is a surreal book. Maybe sometimes unintentionally <laughs> surreal. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to know. Or is it is it in the lineage of like a Joyce and a Gaddis and a Pynchon and a David Foster? Well, like, is it, or a Jennifer Egan? Like, is, is he actually trying to experiment with breaking the rules in an interesting way? Uh, I don't, I don't think it's a successful experiment if it is, but, um, you, you cued that section with Isidore, right? I, you yeah. Wanna, that, yeah. And that was I, I one do. of my favorite moments in the second half, as was Pris pulling the spider apart as much as I hated it. But it, mm-hmm. it was one of the genuine moments in the book where I was like, no, no, don't do that. It was one of the few times where I actually felt invested in the plot as opposed to just like somebody. It's like it's like Philip K. Dick has an ant farm and then he just puts some robot ants in the ant farm and shakes it up and sees what happens. And that's yeah. how I felt a lot of the a lot of the time. This is a little bit of a longer reading. So listeners will put in a little like. If you'd like to skip the whole reading, go for it. But I'm going to read just about a page and three quarters. Um, And hopefully this won't take forever. But uh, this is right after the reveal that mercerism is a sham. Um, and, uh, the androids are kind of trying, are are sort of holding it over Isidore and kind of gloating a little bit. Um, and I think the point there is sort of like, you think that we're fake. Most of your civilization adheres to this other grand. You're just as fake as we are. Exactly. Yeah. Mercerism isn't finished. Isidore said something ailed the three androids, something terrible. The spider, he thought. Maybe it had been the last spider on Earth, as Roy Batty had said. And the spider is gone. Mercer is gone. He saw the dust and the ruin of the apartment as it lay spreading out everywhere. He heard the kipple coming, the final disorder of all forms, the absence which would win out. It grew around him as he stood holding the empty ceramic cup. The cupboards of the kitchen creaked and split, and he felt the floor beneath his feet give. Reaching out, he touched the wall. His hand broke the surface. 
Gray particles trickled and hurried down, fragments of plaster resembling the radioactive dust outside. He seated himself at the table and, like rotten, hollow tubes, the legs of the chair bent. Standing quickly, he set down the cup and tried to reform the chair, tried to press it back into its right shape. The chair came apart in his hands, the screws which had previously connected its several sections ripping out and hanging loose. He saw on the table the ceramic cup crack. Webs of fine lines grew like the shadows of a vine, and then a chip dropped from the edge of the cup, exposing the rough, unglazed interior. What's he doing? Imgard Batty's voice came to him distantly. He's breaking everything. Isidore, stop! I'm not doing it, he said. He walked unsteadily into the living room to be by himself. He stood by the tattered couch and gazed at the yellow stained wall with all the spots which dead bugs that had once crawled had left. And again, he thought of this corpse of the spider with its four remaining legs. Everything in here is old, he realized. It long ago began to decay and it won't stop. The corpse of the spider has taken over. In the depression caused by the sagging of the floor, pieces of animals manifested themselves. The head of a crow, mummified hands which might have once been parts of monkeys. A donkey stood a little way off, not stirring and yet apparently alive. At least it had not begun to deteriorate. He started toward it, feeling stick-like bones, dry as weeds, splinter under his shoes. But before he could reach the donkey, one of the creatures which he loved the most, a shiny blue crow fell from above to perch on the donkey's unprotesting muzzle. Don't, he said aloud, but the crow rapidly picked out the donkey's eyes. Again, he thought, it's happening to me again. I will be down here a long time, he realized. As before, it's always long because nothing here ever changes. A point comes when it does not even decay. It really so I think that is the best passage of the book. <laughs> it's really very good. And yeah. and you know what's interesting is like I wonder what this book would have been like if the emotional narration of Deckard had been as well drawn as the emotional narration of Isidore. It, it's almost like you have two protagonists, one of whom does things and the other one of whom feels things. And, uh -huh. and ne'er the twain shall meet, except for at the end. <laughs> it would be, uh, wouldn't it be great if you <laughs> put them yeah. together? Yeah, exactly. Um, it, I mean, it is. It's very, very lovely. It is, it is exquisite. It, I mean, it does. I sometimes, having read this book now, there's a part of me, you know, that wonders what if rather than a book, there had been a collection of short stories about these characters that kind of explored similar themes, but were, you know, um, there, there's a collection, there are a couple collections that Isaac Asimov wrote that I'm sure Philip K. Dick is aware of, you know, like the iRobot series, some of, you know, uh, there was the iRobot, they were, they were compiled in a collection that I had as a teenager called robot visions. That's excellent. Mm. And they're not, most of them aren't androids. They're metallic robots, although there are some android stories. Um, but they're about kind of the three laws of robots and robot psychology and sort of the idea that robots are programmed not to hurt humans, not to hurt themselves or other robots, 
and to do whatever people want them to do. But those three laws will interact in interesting ways in their mm -hmm. kind of robot brains, their positronic brains. And rather than write a novel about this, Asimov just explores it in a series of sketches and short stories. And some of them are funny. Some of them are dark. Some of them are kind of like murder mysteries. Some of them are sort of like interesting thought experiments. There are characters who appear in a lot of them, like this robot psychologist, Dr. Susan Calvin. And I, I kind of wonder if like this world that Dick imagines would work better as a series of short stories. I think he is trying to do something extremely ambitious, which is to make Isidore's journey in this book intersect with Deckard's at the climax in a satisfying way, which is a wonderful, ambitious thing for a novelist to do other than I just don't think it works. I just don't think it, I don't think they intersect. I mean, they see each other, they bump into each other, but it has, I don't know that them seeing each other has any particular impact on, doesn't really have any particular impact on Deckard as far as I can tell. And of course it does on Isidore, but only because Deckard kills his new friends. So yeah, but it, it is, it's a lovely passage. Yeah, and I really like think he is finally like reaching towards like it 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 feels like the climax of the book, which is weird because like then the ostensible climax of the book is Deckard defeating the androids, but this feels like the culmination of the ideas in the book as Isidore kind of merges with Mercer which I feel like is the thing that's happening. He's kind of down in the tomb world. Um, Mercerism kind of requires its adherence to palpably experience. It would be kind of like you would log on to something and experience being crucified. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the, I mean, Mercerism is kind of a mix of Christianity and like the Sisyphus myth. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the other thing, I mean, if there's clearly some fascinating technology involved and we never learn if it is a scam, who is perpetuating the scam. Right. <laughs> but the other thing, the, the thing I really like that happens shortly after this is he encounters Mercer and Isidore sort of like, I knew it. I knew you weren't a fraud. And he's like, no, I am. I am a fraud. Yeah, I'm an old drunk actor that, that filmed all this in a studio. They're exactly right. Uh, but, you know, um, that doesn't mean that I'm not real also or something. You get the sense that both things can be true in this case in a way that I think many people who are religious would relate to. Um, yeah. You know, that there is that, that a, a religion can both be based on untruths or beliefs that they've come to doubt, but also can still contain truths. And I think that's what Mercerism is supposed to stand in for. And I think that's why we keep seeing Mercer even we see him three times after he is revealed to be a quote unquote fraud. And yeah, I think that's fascinating. I wonder, I wonder though, if there's just too many ideas, you know, we've got the, the, the androids, humanity and the empathy. We've got the sort of future world and the colon colonialization. We have, you know, Deckard's increasing disenchantment with the work that he's doing. We've got the robot sheeps. So we've got the mood or is there just too much crap, you know, and yeah. to keep track of is that part of the problem yeah it's too it's too much and thought. it's good crap it's good crap i mean that's the problem it's it, the book is too small it's too small of a container for these ideas right i don't i don't i think this is 
I don't think this is early in Dick's career. I know he he had been kind of writing smack dab in the middle. I think I think it's right in the middle. Yeah. yeah, and so so we can't you know there's no like ah oh, he did he was he had to do it under a year through Terry Carr you know making him forcing him to do this hard thing. Um, if I had to guess, I would almost say maybe he was a little bit of a victim of success. That mm. that because um, when did the Man in the High Castle come out? Um, and I think he was a successful short story writer. He also yeah. was a libertine and a hedonist. And um, uh, let's see, the Man in the High Castle. I feel like that was earlier. Book. Oh, damn TV series. Who wants to look up TV series? Um, oh, 1962. So not that much earlier, but but six okay. years earlier. So I think he had had a pretty successful book. He had been a pretty at this point. This is kind of like the height of his powers in terms of being able to get s books published and things like that. So he's got a book deal. He's making some money. He's on his third out of five wives or something like that. He's doing a lot of acid. He's getting drunk a lot. And his mind, he still has great ideas, but um, if, if anything, I kind of feel like he, he, had an, he was a bit ambitious and then just kind of didn't quite execute this time. Kind of yeah. phoned it in, especially in the second half. Came up with a good, some good ideas for a book, wrote some good chapters, but then kind of slapped them together in a little bit of a half-ass way, and that's what we get. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the... the Blade Runner, the movie, is not a perfect film. No. But it is, I think, the rare moment where the film adaptation surpasses the novel. It is. Not just in entertainment value. No, um, no. I think it develops the ideas more interestingly. And I mean, yeah. the big one, and I was going to ask you about this, is that in Blade Runner, it very much answers the question whether or not androids are capable of empathy or not. Mm -hmm. It takes a stance on that question. Yeah. Do you think this book takes a stance on that question? I think it does, but I think the stance is that they don't. Which isn't very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right? Like, like, wouldn't it be a lot more interesting if they did? I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe that, I mean, maybe he's going for sort of like, ooh, you would think that they did, but... But they still don't. So, but it's still wrong to kill them. Or I don't know. Maybe he's going for a layer of moral complexity. There, which, which is not. You know, there there aren't enough pages in the book for that. Right. <laughs> like, right. Or he uses the pages that he has ineffectively. Um, you know, because there are some sections where I'm like, yeah, we really could spend more time. We could spend less time badly chasing androids in a sort of bland procedural and more time why does there have to be so many of them yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it's all made up make the record three androids in one day well, and have and four in, of them in, out there and in blade runner it's four you know yeah i, I think ridley scott did some things that really yeah. worked yeah and I, I found myself like towards the end of this book being like so the androids are jerks. Like, Pris torturing the spider yeah. is a pretty good moment. And then I was like, Rachel just, like, pushes the goat off the roof because, because like, Deckard didn't fall for her ploy? 
or or is angry at him for killing the other androids who she says she knows and is friends with even though she doesn't apparently have empathy she's still angry or she just wants to wound him or she's sexually jealous that he's going back to his wife and has abandoned i don't you know it that is underexplained i mean i think one of the open questions also is do humans actually have empathy because Deckard's apparent journey is developing so much empathy for the androids that he doesn't want to kill them anymore. But then he goes ahead and kills them. You know, Mm -hmm. he feels bad about it. He feels bad enough to take care of a mechanical toad. Yeah, I don't think it's like a loveless marriage. Well, well, okay. so I think this is a good setup for the reading I want to do, too. Awesome. So this is right after Rachel has killed the sheep. And Deckard is talking to his wife, Erin. Erin is her name? I think it's Erin. Yeah, Erin. Um, I saw her very clearly, Erin said. Barbara was still up here, fooling around. He came down to get me, and we called the police. But by then, the animal was dead, and she had left. A small, young-looking girl with dark hair and large black eyes, very thin. She had a male pouch purse, and she made no effort to keep us from seeing her, as if she didn't care. No, she didn't care, he said. Rachel wouldn't give a damn if you saw her. She probably wanted you to. So I'd know who had done it. He kissed her. It's so awful, so needless. He turned towards his parked car, opened the door, and got in behind the wheel. Not needless, he said. She had what seemed to her a reason, an android reason, he thought. Where are you going? Won't you come downstairs and be with me? There was the most shocking news on TV. Buster Friendly claims that Mercer is a fake. What do you think about that, Rick? Do you think it could be true? Everything is true, he said. Everything anybody has ever thought. He snapped on the car motor. Will you be all right? I'll be all right, he said and thought. And I'm going to die. Both those are true, too. He closed the door flicked a signal with his hand to Urin, and then swept up into the night sky. Everything is true. Everything is false. She had a reason, an android reason. I don't know. Maybe this is a brilliant bit of emotional realism and the way that no truth is completely true and no truth is completely false. Or maybe this is just Philip K. Dick giving up. And being like, I don't know what this book's about. Yeah, Rachel had a reason, an android reason. Mercer's fake, Mercer's real. Nothing means anything. I I certainly, when I read that, I was just sort of like, you're not even trying anymore, man. You're just doing the like, (laughs) it just feels like I'm hanging out with you and you're 19 in a college dorm and you're like, well, what is even reality? I mean, like, what if we're just imagining and everything I say is both true and not true at the same time and what we do in life doesn't matter at all because it's just our own creation of our imagination. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I think, both of us have said that about the last two books that we talked about. You've said it just now about this book. I said it about Neuromancer. Um, there is, and maybe it's a, a flavor. You know, I could say this about some of Jonathan Lethem's early stuff, where there is a lot of great idea and a little bit less effective rendering. Mm. And then a lot of what you just described, like a kind of like, overly 
philosophical yet entirely maudlin <laughs> kind of point of view. It feels and like a cop-out to just be yeah. like, everything is true and everything is not true. That's not a philosophy. That is the absence of philosophy. <laughs> right. It's not even it's not even nihilism, you know, because nihilism is like, well, let's take meaninglessness and, you know, do something with it. Right. And, you know, this is, this is sort of shying away from even saying that we're going to turn non-meaning into something meaningful for us. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's a problem. It's, I mean, it's, I can see why, why these books hold a fascination for a lot of people because it brings up enough idea to be interesting but it doesn't do what i want a novel to do which is to both bring up an interesting idea and to take a stand on that idea yeah i agree i don't i don't think it really takes a stand except for yeah. ex the only stand it seems to take to me is it seems to be arguing that the distinction we're making between real and fake between authentic and ersatz which is one of philip k dick's favorite words ersatz is a meaningless distinction mm. uh, but i don't think it makes that particularly convincingly um and in an interesting way i have a poem to read um oh, okay. but uh you know i um you know as i was wrestling with this book um the william carlos williams line no ideas but in things kept coming up to me mm. um, because I feel like this is a book that eschews things and rests mostly in ideas. It's like no things but in ideas. Yeah, yeah exactly. No things but all ideas. Um, so I, I grabbed a chunk of William Carlos Williams' poem, Patterson, and I think we really should put this the whole poem in the show notes because William Carlos Williams is great. But he writes free verse. He's a contemporary of Wallace Stevens. So we're not as surreal as Stevens, but it really is the kind of poem that helps to have it in front of you. So if you want to scroll down, I pasted it into our um, discussion notes so you can sure. read along. Um, the Mr. Patterson in this novel, in this poem, uh, could be an author insert for William Carlos Williams. I think it is, but... I think the entire ideas of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep might be summed up in this section of a poem by William Carlos Williams. So, uh, say it. No ideas but in things. Mr. Patterson has gone away to rest and write. Inside the bus, one sees his thoughts sitting and standing, his thoughts alight and scatter. Who are these people? How complex this mathematic, among whom I see myself in the regularly ordered plate glass of his thoughts, glimmering before shoes and bicycles. They walk incommunicado. The equation is beyond solution, yet its sense is clear. That they may live, his thought is listed in the telephone directory. And there's young Alex Shorn, whose dad, the bootblack, bought a house and painted it inside with seascapes of a pale green monochrome, the infinite Dionysus springing from Apollo's arm, the floors oak-grained in Balkan fashion, Hermes' nose, the body of a gourmand, the lips of Cupid, the eyes, the black of Venus's sister. But who? 
Who are these people? It is his flesh making the traffic, cranking the car, buying the meal. Defeated in achieving the solution, they fall back among cheap pictures, furniture-filled silk, cardboard shoes, bad dentistry windows that will not open, poisonous gin, scurvy, toothache. What do you take from that? So what I mostly get here, um, I really love the way that the speaker is both Mr. Patterson and somebody watching Mr. Patterson. Um, and you get to see inside the bus, one sees his thoughts sitting and standing. So this writer figure is on the bus. He's thinking about the people that are there, his thoughts alight and scatter. He's beginning to like imagine who these people are. Um, the regularly ordered plate glass of his thoughts glimmering bef before shoes and bicycles. He's kind of seeing them through the window and seeing, I think, himself reflected in the in the plate glass as you kind of look through it. And it flits from character to character in the way that this kind of roving eye identifies people and imagines them and imagines their lives. And there's this like incredible flight of fancy of Alex Shorn's dad who painted the inside of their house, this pale green monochrome. And that occasions this flight of fancy about the infant Dionysus. It's just this wonderful, like ideas are just springing out of the things in the poem. Right. And sort of like blooming like flowers all over the place on this bus. Yeah. And we keep coming back to this question, though. Like he keeps drawing our attention to the fact that this is all this is all um, his his thought, his creation. Um, but who who are these people? Um, and then it, it returns to the ideas of flesh instead of thought. It's this flesh making the traffic, cranking the car, buying the meat. And eventually... This, this stanza kind of deflates back into the stuff of the everyday. Cheap pictures, furniture-filled silk. I love that one. Furniture-filled silk. What a great way to talk about furniture. <laughs> um, that like it is like a covering that's filled with furniture um, was just a, like such a lovely idea. It's, it's, like, it's like describing a person as a, uh, uh, a, a person-filled skin. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it it it's and they and Human like filled skin. And like maybe that's maybe that's an android, a, like yeah. a human filled yeah. skin. Yeah. Um and there's all this like stuff. You know, there's this this speaker sort of goes on a walk and gets on a bus and looks at the people and has this flight of fancy and then it all it it doesn't even crash back to earth with you know, bad stuff, cheap pictures, furniture filled silk, cardboard shoes, bad dentistry, windows that will not open, poisonous gin, scurvy, toothache. You get the sense that like Williams kind of loves the, the garbage that's around or yeah. he sees it as just as interesting as the beautiful things. And that there is this wonderful dichotomy in this pat in this stanza even between the imagination and the physical. And I think that's what Philip K. Dick was after. Yeah. I mean, he's hugely influenced by the existentialists. So, but 
Whereas the thing that I love about William Carlos Williams is that he takes all of those maudlin 1 a.m. college dorm room thoughts and he's like, you know what? Everything is beautiful. <laughs> like all the stuff, like yeah. the things around us, like even the things that are ostensibly ugly are amazing and full of life that we both can and can't imagine. It's like um, it's like Andy Warhol painting the Campbell soup cans. Yes. 50 years before Andy Warhol painting the Campbell soup cans. 100 percent. Yeah. Like drawing our attention to the beauty of the, the pedestrian. I do think some of the best moments in this book are kind of the odd thoughts the characters have between set pieces and plot points. You know, the, the sort of, I can't, nothing is coming to mind right now, but, you know, uh, and I kind of wish there was more of that, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and Deckard, the nicest moments with Deckard is when he is sort of having a little flight of fancy and he's sort of pondering or something. But I often feel like his emotional narration is very meat-like. It's very like, he was suddenly angry. He was suddenly calm. Um, but yeah, I do think I do think it's what Dick's going for. I think William Carlos Williams achieves it more beautifully. Although there are moments in this novel that achieve it rather mm-hmm. beautifully too. And I, th- you know, I think you've pointed a few of them out. Okay, so you you reached into the modern era to the sort of the existentialist era for something beautiful and sort of sublime and also kind of quotidian and ordinary, kind of uplifting of the quotidian and ordinary. I think I'm reaching to a contemporary of uh, William Carlos Williams, I think, if I have my chronology right, Ernest Hemingway. Uh, but I'm doing, I, I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of satire as a way of uh, venting my frustration at the second half of the book. Um, so what I'm going to do is read the last couple paragraphs of The Sun Also Rises. Um, when was the last time? I assume you've read that. When was the last time you've read I that? I have, but uh, col- college. Yeah, I, uh, I think me yeah, too. This is I, the second time in two episodes that uh, I'm going to reference uh, Pat Wallace's great um, American modernism class uh, that I took uh, junior year. I read it a long time ago, and I don't think I really got it, but I also feel like I've sort of absorbed it through osmosis, through a number of, of references. So here is here is the actual ending. Um, Jake, uh, the protagonist, and Brett, who is his friend, and they are romantically attracted, but Jake is... Um, sexually impotent um, due to his wound. Um, so they're not really able to consummate their attraction. Um, this is the last scene. They're in Madrid uh, together. A bunch of stuff has happened. Downstairs, we came out through the first floor dining room to the street. A waiter went for a taxi. It was hot and bright. Up the street was a little square with trees and grass where there were taxis parked. A taxi came up the street, the waiter hanging out at the side. I tipped him and told the driver where to drive and got in beside Brett. The driver started up the street. I settled back. Brett moved close to me. We sat close against each other. I put my arm around her and she rested against me comfortably. It was very hot and bright and the houses looked sharply white. We turned out onto the Gran Via. Oh, Jake, Brett said. We could have had such a damned good time together. Ahead was a mounted policeman in khaki, directing traffic. He raised his baton. The car slowed, suddenly pressing Brett against me. Yes, I said. Isn't it pretty to think so? The end. 
So this is that same scene written by Philip K. Dick, particularly in the style of when he's doing emotional narration around Rick Deckard, uh, not when he's doing emotional narration around um, Isidore, which I think is much better. The driver started up the street. I settled back. Brett moved close to me. I could feel her girlish legs pressing against mine. I liked the feeling of those girlish legs. <laughs> yeah, I, gotta, I might have to mute you because I... <laughs> I liked the feeling of those girlish legs pressing against me. We sat close against each other as though we were lovers, but of course we were not. I put my arm around her and she rested against me comfortably. For a moment, I felt like if we went on like this, I would almost be happy, but it was a pretense. It was very hot and bright and the houses looked sharply white. We turned out on the Grand Via. Oh, Jake, Brett said, we could have had such a damned good time together. If only you hadn't had your penis blown off in the great war between the European powers. <laughs> Suddenly, I was angry at Brett for sleeping with that damn bullfighter and that damn Jew, Cohen. Stop talking about my damn penis, I snarled. Ahead was a damn mounted policeman in khaki directing traffic. Or was he just pretending to direct traffic? He raised his baton anyway. The car slowed, suddenly pressing Brett against me. My anger vanished for a moment at the feel of her girlish legs. <laughs> Yes, I said. Isn't it pretty to think so? But it's not true. Even if I hadn't had my damn penis blown off in the Great War, there's something about us that just doesn't get along. Maybe it's because you're such a slut and you slept with other men when I pretended to encourage you to do that. Secretly, I wanted you to be loyal to me, and you weren't. And now I'm a little angry. But let's pretend I'm not. The end. <laughs> oh my god that's <laughs> what's amazing about it is like how little it, it what it does is it reveals the like how beautifully fragile Hemingway's writing is and how good it is um and how even the simple sentences serve to do something important, even if it's just to let us know that like the car is moving up the street or the taxi is coming down the street towards the characters. And like, and you're like wild overwriting of Jake's interiority is, is marvelous. It's like, and like I, the um, I, had, I had a I had a I had a strong oh role model God. in Philip K. Dick. Brilliantly, I mean, the like he doesn't very, always overwrite. No, but it's like, true. But when he does, in, he really goes for it. Yeah, in, in particularly well rendered was your use of the word against in three consecutive sentences, where you're like, <laughs> never do that. <laughs> like, you know what I think this sentence needs? I think it needs the same preposition. <laughs> As the previous two sentences, <laughs> like, um, oh my god, I love that. You should send that somewhere. You should. I don't know where That's, to put it. Well, it's a it it's a very shouts and murmurs kind of thing. Um, it's true. It's you know, true. Um, and shouts and murmurs is one of the only two uh, parts of the New Yorker that you can submit cold to. Um, so I don't know. Like, it does feel a little bit like Victoria Gang. Um, oh who, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, um, yeah. Reed Proust and Ronald Reagan. Yes, yes. Classic. Love trouble is my business. Yeah. Oh, God. 
Yeah, absolutely. I slapped her around a few times and she cried a bit. And then we read Proust together on the bed. <laughs> Mr. Reagan, she said. So good. It's, it's incredible. So good. Um, listener, if you don't know it, so Victoria, Victoria Gang, I was, this was, goes way back, right? Like the 80s? 84, uh, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's um, a wonderful little... It's hard to find. ...fiction piece. I have a... I almost said mimeograph of it. Um, I, it could be a mimeograph. I, I think I might have a photocopy of that. Um, I will take a, I'll take a, I'll snap a photo of it and post it in our, uh, you know, um, I mean, we don't make any money, I, so we can wildly believe, violate those. <laughs> yeah, and they could tell us not to, and we can take it down. But uh, I believe it, it. there was an episode of the New Yorker uh, fiction podcast. Yes. I think it was the fiction yep. podcast in which Jonathan Franzen read that yeah. and commented on that, too. And uh, that was probably 15 years ago now, but that's that's that might still be floating around out there. Yeah, could you be could probably find findable. that. Findable. But I just, I Jonathan just found... Jonathan or The New Yorker, if you're listening and want to <laughs> yeah. send us a link, uh, we'd be very happy to share our 50 listeners uh, with your with your, uh, with your your work. Yeah, and um, and everybody should know more about Victoria Gang. Um, died, yeah, died, yeah. Too, died too soon. Absolutely hilarious. Uh, but I think we should go to trivia. Let's go to trivia. Um, so... I got curious about the word Android, um, and the word Android goes back to the 19th century, and originally it referred to mechanical toys, sort of like <laughs> dolls that moved. But in the 1920s or 30s, it became a common descriptor of a humanoid robot, um, as opposed mm-hmm. to like a metallic robot or an R2-D2 type, like sort of, you know, I don't know what you'd call an R2-D2 robot, but a kind of like non-humanoid at all. One of the first popular uses of the term Android was a series of pulp sci-fi books called Captain Future, published in the 1940s and 50s. Um, Captain Future, he was a young man who was raised, I think, on the moon by two robots. He was orphaned, and he was raised by two robots who were built by his father along with another scientist who is, at this point, has been rendered as a brain in a jar, and then I think he has some, like, implementing tools and the robots were Grag and Otho. Grag was a seven-foot-tall metallic robot, and Otho was the clever android. Now, I think there's a good chance that Philip K. Dick is familiar with Grag and Otho, particularly they are exactly the kind of book that Pris talks about reading when she talks about how they mm-hmm. read sci-fi books, you know, and yeah. she refers to uh, books that have, like, women with, like, heavy bosoms on venus yes. and the, yeah it's very much a 50s silver age um sci-fi yeah, yeah. um yeah. yeah so i think i think there's a good chance that he might have been influenced by uh captain future and greg and Otho, and they probably came out when he was young he might have even been a teenager when the series started because it started in like 39 or 40 or something like that mm-hmm. um there is an element of Otho, the humanoid androids character, that it may have influenced this book. I'm not sure, but um, I'm going to give you three. Uh, the, he, he has one of these features, and I think it might have influenced the book. So is it A, that Otho, the android, has a pet, a shape-shifting mimic, sort of dog-like creature called Oog, or Oog? Um, B, uh, Otho can alter his voice to sound like any person he hears, which along with his shape-shifting makes him a very effective master of disguise. And C, Otho has a stammer. 
I'm going to go with C. Author has a stammer. He has a pet. Ugh. Damn it. He has a pet. <laughs> Just like the... Uh, well, do any of the androids have a pet? I don't think so. No. But that, that one of the questions that Deckard wonders to himself is whether the androids want a pet. <sighs> In fact, whether they want an electric pet or a real pet. Bummer. I was, uh, I was reading a little bit of Blade Runner because, like... JR's character in the movie is sort of like just wonderfully portrayed um by that uh character Anderson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um uh who like hilariously then, you know, 20 years later um is one of the main characters of uh HBO western um oh, Westworld? No, no, no. Um before the one previous to that. Um uh... Oh, uh, uh, Deadwood. Deadwood. That's right. Yes, he's in yes, Deadwood. Yes, he's yeah. in that. And um, like because of all his toys in the movie, he does have kind of like an androidish thing. And I was like, I wonder if that's it. <sighs> okay. Well, the uh, the slump continues. It's okay. I don't mind. Um, I I just like. Got to keep getting out there. Just got to keep getting out there. It, you know. Which of these odd anecdotes about Philip K. Dick is not true? <laughs> Okay. Okay. A. After his death, an android was built, dressed in his clothes, draped in his like a mask of his face, and loaded with Philip K. Dick's writing so it could speak in the manner of the author. And then after that, somebody lost its head in a carry-on bag. B. He was kicked out of a symposium about Sartre because he showed up having taken a large amount of LSD and proceeded to smash all of the water pitchers in one particular lecture room. C. He claimed that a spiritual voice he called Ruah spoke to him and dictated ideas to him. It first appeared to him during a high school physics exam. Whoa. Those... I think I feel very confident that B is true. Um, A, it, it it could be true, but it rings of artifice to me. It it um, so I'm gonna guess A. It is B. He was kicked. Oh, that was not true. I I made up. He was that not one. kicked out. He was of a not Sark kicked out of a Sark symposium for being too high on LSD. Um, so they really made a robot out uh, of him? Yes, there was an android that was built in 2005, um, loaded mm -hmm. with his writing. Um, something like all of the words that he had ever written, they put into its, uh, into its, into its software. Um, so mm -hmm. it could sort of speak in the manner of its author. Um, but on the trip home, somebody left the carry-on bag with Philip K. Dick's android head in it, and it got lost. And in 2011, they rebuilt the head and relaunched the Android. So somewhere out there yes. is Philip K. Dick's original Android head. You know, that would be a lot more effective today with like ChatGPT and, and the other AI technology. Like you could you could probably have a, a robot that spoke much more effectively yeah. in Philip K. Dick prose. And what a weird echo of the Neuromancer plot. Yeah. The head. Oh yeah. I okay. Well, Chris Bag, are you gonna read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep again? I don't think so. 
I don't think I'm going to read it. I'm going to watch the movie. Yeah. I'm going to go luxuriate in the non-voiced over version from 2007. It's really good. I watched it again recently. Yeah. Um, it's it's real. It's so much better. It is flawed too. Oh yeah. Like it's not perfect, but it. Um, yeah. I don't think I'm gonna. I don't think I'm gonna read it again. Yeah. I think I'm glad I did it this time. I'm glad I immersed in it. I do think he's very talented. It's not at all surprising to me that a number of his short stories and books made it into movies because Hollywood likes high concept mm -hmm. and he's very good at high concept, yeah. you know, and I think that's the reason for it. And I am convinced there were there was enough good stuff in this book to make me feel like there's probably other good stuff that he's written out there. And yeah. I remember I started The Man in the High Castle and then I think the book was due at the library and I had to return it. Um, so I think I might put that one on my list. Yeah. Um, so I remember you saying better. you liked it, that what you read, that you were enjoying it. Yeah. yeah. I was enjoying it too. And then I think I just ran out of time and didn't couldn't renew it. It was I remember it was that collection that Jonathan Lethem contributed the introduction to uh, in you don't like know 2008. Dick. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think he also may have curated the choices for that, or he yeah, was involved that, in the I'm publication sure was, in yeah. some way. Um, what's next? What is next? We are going to be doing the first half of Joe Haldeman's sci-fi classic, The Forever War. I read it probably 20 years ago, and I really enjoyed it. I um, have never so read it, but I'm really looking forward to it. Classic Silver. I think Silver Age is like 60s, 70s, early 80s, and Golden Age is like 30s, 40s, 50s. Into, um, I don't know what the 60s would be. It would be sort of the transitional time. But, um, well, Upper Middle Brow is still a small point production. Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes. You know what? I'm going to try to come up with something. Because uh, I real sheep is here from last time. I think real quick. Any ideas? Mm, uh, let's see. Uh, yes, we can certainly come up with something. Um Bounty hunters. Um, I don't really want to be a bounty hunter. Yeah, though. I don't really want to be a bounty hunter either. <laughs> uh, how about Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the vets at the animal hospitals for both real and fake animals. Music by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. We could really use some more ratings and more reviews. Thanks for the ones that we've gotten. And as a reminder, everybody, uh, Jesse and I are both writers and editors, and we can help you with writing, podcasting, editing, pretty much anything creative that you need help with. You can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com and jessedukes.com. Check it out and get in touch if you want to talk about poetry, if you want to talk about projects, if you want to talk about anything written, audio, visual, we can probably help. Check us out. Oh, and one more thing. I wanted to share that I will be teaching an online course on bookkeeping for freelancers. You might know I'm a freelance journalist and radio producer with 18 years of experience. I also used to do bookkeeping for small businesses. I've found that for some creative professionals, keeping track of income, expenses, and assets can be challenging, intimidating, confusing, but it's important to do it so you understand your business and so you don't overpay your taxes. So this class is for anybody who does creative work, uh, graphic design, copywriting, journalism, composing. The class will be online on Wednesday evening, November 8th. Costs $50.00. And you can find the details and register at my website, jessedukes.com. Mm -hmm.